Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It was Thursday, February 17, 1898. The U.S. battleship Maine was still smoking from its murderous explosion in the Havana Harbor, and the headline in the New York Journal and Advertiser read, Destruction of the warship Maine was the work of an enemy. Seemingly a true headline, but the fact was that no one knew for sure if it was caused by an enemy mine or a boiler explosion. But the newspaper wasn't going to like facts get in the way of sales. The point was that the newspapers carrying this and similar headlines were pushing America into a war, which would sell many more newspapers and garner huge profits for their owners. When it came to news in those days, around the turn of the century, one could follow the money trail and the politics, and they were always just beneath the surface. This is a story about yellow journalism, irresponsible journalism, and seeing it for what it was at the turn of the 18th century, just 120 years ago. And as well, it's a story of the men whose greed and ambition undoubtedly controlled a corrupted press, directly or indirectly caused the assassination of a U.S. president, and through their greed and bias contributed to a war between two nations, the U.S. and Spain, the highlight of their story being their sensationalist coverage of the build-up to the Spanish-American War, and the catalyst of the war, the destruction of the U.S. battleship Maine on February 15, 1898, in Cuba. It was a famous milestone in the story of tabloid journalism, which was described by Frank Luther Mott as being based upon five characteristics. One, scare headlines in huge print, often of minor news. Two, lavish use of pictures or imaginary drawings. Three, use of faked interviews, misleading headlines, pseudoscience, and a parade of false learning from so-called experts. Four, emphasis on full-color Sunday supplements, usually with comic strips. And five, dramatic sympathy with the underdog against the system. Frank Luther Mott was an American historian and journalist who won the 1939 Pulitzer Prize for History for Volumes 2 and 3 of his series, A History of American Magazines. Mott wrote this over a hundred years ago, and much of it still holds true today. A newspaper is published to turn a profit for its owners, not to publish fact. Let me repeat that again. 
A newspaper is published to turn a profit for its owners, and not to publish fact. Once you start believing otherwise, you're going to be in for a big letdown, but we're here today to talk about history. Whatever parallels you want to draw about today's news and yesterday's yellow journalism are completely up to you. And so we begin our story. Investor, entrepreneur, business mogul William Randolph Hearst, one of the stars in this story, owned the New York Journal in 1898, and he was involved in an all-out war to grab headlines from a competitor paper called The New York World, owned by Joseph Pulitzer. Hearst's background, and I'll give you the brief. He had attended Harvard, was a member of the Harvard Lampoon, and you might remember from one of our early episodes, these were the guys who invited John Wayne to speak to them in the 60s. Hearst was apparently a wild man at Harvard, got expelled, and asked his wealthy dad if he had a business he could run. He entered into the publishing business at the age of 24, when his dad, who had made his money in gold mining and had one control of the San Francisco Examiner in a gambling debt, transferred the ownership to his son. But Hearst wanted more, and his idea was to link the East and West Coast with his newspapers. So he went to New York and purchased a failing newspaper called the New York Morning Journal, making a number of key moves with money given to him by his now wealthy widowed mother. He aligned himself closely with the Democrat Party and with Tammany Hall. He bought the best editors, writers, cartoonists, and illustrators, many from his competitors, and got to work moving the paper to the top of the existing dailies, of which there were 16 at that time. His paper began reporting on political and municipal corruption, so long as it wasn't attached to the Democrat Party and dramatic crime and human interest stories, taking the side of the downtrodden against the rich corporate fat guys who were only out to pad their own pockets. Of course, that also described Hearst to a T. But no matter. On the surface, he was a nice guy who cared for others. He was described by one in his circle as being generous, patient, impeccably calm, and indulgent of prima donnas, eccentrics, bohemians, drunks, and reprobates as long as they had useful talents. One of the newspaper owners whose world was shaken when Hearst hired away many of his best people was Joseph Pulitzer. He was about 13 years older than Hearst, and he had published the St. Louis Post-Dispatch as well as the very successful New York World. He was born to a Jewish family in Budapest, came to New York alone and broke in 1864 at age 17, and soon signed up with the Union Army, ended up serving for Phil Sheridan for eight months during the Civil War, in a mostly German-speaking unit. After the war, he moved to Bedford, Massachusetts and tried whaling, but found it boring. You have to wonder if he ever had to take a Nantucket sleigh ride. He then went to St. Louis seeking his fortune, but soon found he had trouble finding work. He was too scrawny for labor and too proud to take direction, but he did end up taking orders. He worked as a waiter at Tony Faust's Oyster House and Cafe then a restaurant at the corner of Broadway and Elm in St. Louis, kind of place where people went just to be seen there. The restaurant's been gone for a hundred years, but it still lives on in the legends of St. Louis. Anheuser-Busch recently named one of their craft beers Faust Beer to honor that memory. Joe spent nearly all his time off studying at the St. Louis Mercantile Library at the corner of Fifth and Locust, studying English and reading nonstop. Then one of those live-and-learn incidents occurred that opened the path for him to newspapers. 
Joe and several other men were approached by a fast talker, who in return for five dollars from each of them, promised them a high-paying job on a sugar plantation downriver, meaning south of St. Louis on the mighty Mississippi. He and ten other guys climbed aboard a steamer, which took them thirty miles down, at which point the crew forced them off, leaving them with a long walk back. Lesson learned. But Pulitzer was mad, mad enough to write about it, and send it to the Westlish Post, which bought it. Joe had published his first story, and in the process of going to the post offices, he had met and impressed a few lawyers in the building, who hired him and put him to work recording railroad land deeds. Later that year, when the Westlich Post needed a reporter, they hired Joe. And he was pretty good. He worked 16 hours a day, from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. He earned the nicknames Joey the German and Joey the Jew, and he joined the Republican Party until his candidate bombed, then switched to Democrat. He soon bought a stake in the Post for $3,000 and later sold it for a profit, buying the St. Louis Dispatch, and turning that paper into a champion for the common man using human interest stories and exposés. By 1883, Pulitzer was a very wealthy man, and he was able to buy the New York world from Jay Gould for $346,000. The paper had been losing $40,000 a year, but Joe turned it around with his formula of using sensational stories involving scandal, crime, disasters, and human interest. It was Joe Pulitzer who hired the famous investigative journalist Nellie Bly and cartoonist Richard F. Outcalt, who penned the hugely popular comic strip The Yellow Kid, which helped move his circulation from 15,000 to 600,000, making the New York world the most widely read paper in the country at that time. And what a story is Nellie Bly, real name Elizabeth Jane Cochran, We've got to do a story on her one of these days. She became famous as a journalist for two reasons. One, her record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days, in emulation of Jules Verne's fictional character, Phileas Fogg. And two, for doing an expose in which she faked insanity to get admitted to a mental asylum, then worked undercover to report on the mental institution from the inside. And her reporting shocked the readership becoming the catalyst for reform in that sector. She was a pioneer in her field and launched a new kind of investigative journalism. Bly was also a writer, industrialist, inventor, and a charity worker. But the biggest threat to Pulitzer's newspaper empire, which now was anchored by the New York world, had just arrived in New York City. Randolph Hearst had purchased the New York Journal and was using the same tactics and strategy to make it successful. An epic newspaper battle now began to take place between the New York Journal and the New York World, and as it quickly escalated, whatever had been real news was left on the copy room floor, and the battle for supremacy would change journalism forever. The newspapers were mostly black and white in those days, but when they ran stories with big attention-grabbing headlines, they would use yellow ink to capture attention, which in turn garnered more sales, which in turn made both Hearst and Pulitzer wealthier and wealthier. In fact, they were two of the wealthiest men in America, and their names in one way or another still make headlines today. The problem was that the facts were being overlooked all the time by these newspapers and others because they wanted to sell more papers. 
because they were convinced that their responsibility wasn't in getting the story right. It was in getting sales and profits. The news wasn't always accurate. It was slanted to a particular group of readers, biased or made up out of whole cloth to benefit circulation. You can sue a newspaper for libel, but you can't sue them for publishing lies about what was happening, supporting political parties and politicians, blackmailing enemies, subverting elections, or for starting or prolonging a war, as in the case of the Spanish-American War and Hearst. They had almost unlimited power to make or break anyone or anything. Pulitzer was indicted for libel by Theodore Roosevelt and J.P. Morgan, but the courts dismissed it. Libel is hard to prosecute. The readers, of course, believed everything they read, because they'd been led to believe that newspapers reported fact and actually sent reporters out to dig and get the real story, which sometimes they did. The reporters, however, were being sent out to get or create stories that sell, often interviewing unverified sources, and the editors were making the final call on what copy would sell and what would not. The directive heard most often, Juice this story up. I don't care how. Just do it. Yellow journalism and the yellow press are American terms for journalism and associated newspapers that present little or no legitimate, well-researched news with verified sources, while instead using eye-catching headlines for increased sales. Techniques may include exaggerations of news events, scandal-mongering or sensationalism, or just hate-mongering on a politician or known corporate figure. By extension, today's term, fake news, has replaced yellow journalism as a pejorative to decry any journalism that treats news in an unprofessional or unethical fashion. Reporters who repeat others' stories without verifying them are nicknamed drive-bys by some in the media, meaning that they did no more than lift the story off the computer or from social media. In the UK, a roughly equivalent term is tabloid journalism, meaning journalism characteristic of tabloid newspapers, even if found elsewhere. A common source of such writing is called checkbook journalism, which is the controversial practice of news reporters paying sources for their information without verifying its truth or accuracy. This is also used by politicians who pay unverified sources for scandal documents, which, when received, are then leaked to a hungry press, who still, to this day, always willing to buy them. The newspapers are not legally bound to name their sources, so they can print anything that they feel the majority of their readers want to see. The press is very complacent and eager to please, because releasing scandalous news, even if it's not true, increases exposure. In other words, it provides profits which pay expenses. By the time the truth comes out, if it ever does, the lies have been spread around the world. Mark Twain once said, A lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. How true. Joseph Campbell describes yellow press newspapers as having daily, multi-column front-page headlines covering a variety of topics, such as sports and scandal, using bold layouts with large illustrations, heavy reliance on unnamed sources, and unabashed self-promotion. The term yellow journalism was coined by Erwin Wardman, the editor of the New York Press. Wardman was the first to publish the term, 
but there's evidence that expressions such as yellow journalism and the school of yellow kid journalism were already used by newsmen of that time. Wardman never defined the term exactly. Possibly it was a mutation from earlier slander where Wardman twisted new journalism into nude journalism. Wardman had also used the expression yellow kid journalism referring to the then-popular comic strip which was published by both Pulitzer and Hearst during a circulation war. After Joseph Pulitzer purchased the New York World in 1883, he filled that paper with pictures, games, and contests that drew in new readers. Crime stories filled many of the pages with headlines like Was He a Suicide? and Screaming for Mercy. Pulitzer, in an effort to position himself as the protector of the poor and disenfranchised, openly said that he believed that newspapers were public institutions with a duty to improve society, and he put the world in the service of social reform. Just two years after Pulitzer took it over, the world, as mentioned earlier, became the highest circulation newspaper in New York, aided in part by its strong ties to the Democrat Party. According to the author of Pulitzer, H. Swanberg, in 1967, older publishers envious of Pulitzer's success, began criticizing the world, harping on its crime stories and stunts while ignoring its more serious reporting, trends which influenced the popular perception of yellow journalism. Charles Dana, editor of the New York Sun, attacked the world and said Pulitzer was deficient in judgment and in staying power. He also called Pulitzer Judas Pulitzer, using what would have been considered then as a racial slur referring to the biblical story in which Judas sold out Jesus to the Romans for a few silver coins. And here's an example of sensationalism as found in Pulitzer's papers, which will give you a feel for how they worked. Here's a headline about a hotel fire. All in caps. Hungry. Frantic. Flames. And then with the first letter of each word capitalized, they leap madly upon the splendid pleasure palace by the Bay of Monterey, encircling Del Monte in their ravenous embrace from pinnacle to foundation, leaping higher, higher, higher with desperate desire, running madly riotous through cornice, archway, and facade, rushing in upon the trembling guests with savage fury. Appalled and panic-stricken, the breathless fugitives gaze upon the scene of terror, the magnificent hotel and its rich adornments, now a smoldering heap of ashes. We're sending a special train to Monterey to gather full details of the terrible disaster. Hearst routinely invented sensational stories, faked interviews, ran phony pictures, and distorted real events. Consider this anecdote. Vern Whaley, an editor for Hearst's Herald Examiner, once said, We had a crime story that was going to be featured in a 96-point headline on page 1. When I found the address that was in the story, that address was a vacant lot. So I hollered over at the rewrite desk. I said, Hey, you got the wrong address in this story. This is a vacant lot. The copy chief that night was a guy named Vic Barnes. And he says to me, Sit down, Vern. He says, The whole story is a fake. Admittedly, one of the greatest movies of all time, Citizen Kane, a gripping story of a ruthless newspaper mogul who rose to power and wealth on sheer ambition, was loosely based on Hearst's life and included in the movie a number of things associated with Hearst, not the least of which included the building of a huge castle atop a mountain. And Hearst was often blamed for the assassination of President William McKinley, 
who was a hated Republican, hated at least by Hearst and his papers. So, Hearst, an active and progressive Democrat, asked the best writers he could find to smear McKinley and bring him down. The gaudier the better. In February of 1900, Ambrose Bierce wrote a column and closed with a reference to the assassination a few days earlier of the Kentucky governor, William Goebel. It read, The bullet that pierced Goebel's breast cannot be found in all the West. Good reason. It is speeding here to Washington to stretch McKinley on his beer. In early 1901, an unsigned column widely attributed to Hearst editor Arthur Brisbane called McKinley a bad man and declared, If bad institutions and bad men can be got rid of only by killing, then the killing must be done. On September 6, 1901, McKinley was visiting Buffalo, New York for an event called the Pan American Exposition. His VP, Teddy Roosevelt, was on a mountain climbing trip in the Adirondacks. Security was definitely more relaxed in 1901, and McKinley was out and about shaking hands with the public when he was shot close range by an anarchist named Leon Solgolch. After the shooting death of President William McKinley, the New York Journal and a rival newspaper, the New York Sun, promptly engaged in a letters-to-the-editor war over who inspired the assassination. The seeds of that war had been planted April 10, 1901, when William Randolph Hearst's journal attacked McKinley in an editorial that ended with the following words. Institutions, like men, will last until they die. And if bad institutions and bad men can be got rid of only by killing, then the killing must be done. By June 3rd of 1901, Hearst had published another editorial that suggested, in quotes, assassination can be a good thing, end quote. Hearst gave an example, quote, the murder of Lincoln, uniting in sympathy and regret all good people in the North and South, hastened the era of American good feeling, end quote. Solgolds had lost his job during the Panic of 1893 and turned to anarchism. He viewed McKinley, who Hearst's paper was constantly deriding, as a symbol of oppression. Enraged at the injustices, as declared by the journal, Solgolds decided to kill McKinley, and that was the case later made against Hearst by his detractors. Solgolds had attended the event in Buffalo, went to shake the president's hand, and shot him twice. One bullet grazed McKinley, and the other entered his abdomen and was never found. McKinley died one week later of blood poisoning and gangrene, thanks to Solgolz's bullet. There is no limit to the power the printed word has upon people's minds. As early as 1787, Edmund Burke, in the English Parliament, called the press the Fourth Estate. And since the press was all print, he meant the newspapers and broadsides. In England, as in America, in Burke's 1787 coining, he would have been making reference to the traditional three estates of Parliament, the Lords Spiritual, the Lords Temporal, and the Commons. In America, it's the Legislative, Congress, the Executive, headed by the President, and the Judicial, the Supreme Court. And more powerful than all three of them, the Fourth Estate, the Media, or the Press, with the power which they exercised every day to sway public opinion, affect elections, pull heartstrings when they need to sell copy, sensationalize stories when sales are down, and edit and present information which suits their own biases and political leanings. Then and now, 
They are not obligated to present names of informants, and they do publish classified information when it falls into their hands and it suits their objective. The media often see themselves as defenders of civilization, generally seeing themselves as having a higher intelligence and having a higher calling than ordinary people who are not influencers. Hearst became a war hawk after a rebellion broke out in Cuba in 1895. Stories of Cuban virtue and Spanish brutality soon dominated his front page. While the accounts were of dubious accuracy, the newspaper readers of the 19th century didn't expect or necessarily want his stories to be pure non-fiction. Historian Michael Robertson has said that newspaper reporters and readers of the 1890s were much less concerned with distinguishing among fact-based reporting, opinion, and literature. Is that true today or not? It makes for an interesting dinner table conversation, guaranteed. Pulitzer, though lacking Hearst's resources, kept the story on his front page. The yellow press covered the revolution extensively and often inaccurately. But conditions on Cuba were horrific enough. The island was in a terrible economic depression, and Spanish General Valeriano Whaler, sent to crush the rebellion, herded Cuban peasants and dissenters into concentration camps, leading hundreds of Cubans to their deaths. Having clamored for a fight for two years, Hearst took credit for the conflict when it came. A week after the United States declared war on Spain, he ran, quote, How do you like the journal's war? End quote, on his front page. In fact, then-President William McKinley never read the journal, nor newspapers like the Tribune and the New York Evening Post. In 1898, Cuba was fighting against Spain for its independence, being one of the last two islands close to North America that were still held by Spain. The years of Spanish conquest being long gone. The USS Maine, an American battleship, was anchored in the Havana Harbor with the purpose of protecting American interests in Cuba and as a symbol of U.S. support of the Cuban independence movement. Due in part to U.S. pressure, Spain had agreed to grant Cuba limited autonomy beginning January 1, 1898. Later that month, riots broke out in Havana involving Cuban rebels and Spanish forces, and President McKinley had ordered the Maine to Havana in mid-January to protect U.S. business and military interests. In the year leading up to the war, Hearst, now a caped crusader for justice, was using every tactic he could think of to escalate the situation and proving time and time again that there wasn't anything he wouldn't stoop to to accomplish his goals. In February of 1898, relations between the U.S. and Spain deteriorated further. Depoy de Lome, a Spanish minister to the United States, had written a stinging letter about President McKinley to a personal friend. The letter was stolen and soon found itself on the desk of Hearst, who promptly published it on February 9th. After public outcry, Delone was recalled to Spain and the Spanish government apologized. The tension rose. At one point early in the build-up, as one story goes, the previously mentioned Hearst artist Frederick Remington, who had been sent to Cuba to gather impressions for stories Hearst was running, had become bored with seemingly peaceful Cuba, and wired Hearst saying, Everything is quiet. There is no trouble. There will be no war. I wish to return. To which Hearst's alleged reply was, Please remain. You furnish the pictures, 
and I'll furnish the war. It may have been just a rumor, but it stuck. On February 15, 1898, a huge explosion rocked Havana Harbor as the USS Maine exploded, shattering windows for a mile and killing many of the American sailors aboard. The cause of the explosion was not known. On February 18, 1898, the headline on the New York World read, Marine Explosion Caused by Bomb or Torpedo and was covered by Remington's sketch covering half the front page and showing the battleship USS Maine exploding in Havana Harbor. It has been suspected but never proved that Hearst might have either paid for a mine to be used on the ship or known about it prior to its taking place and never warned the U.S. Navy. It has never been clear if Hearst had advised artist Remington to set up a good vantage point within view of the harbor just prior to the explosion that killed many American sailors but it would surprise no one if that were ever verified. The obvious assumption there would be that Hearst had arranged to have a mine explode the hull of the main, which would have led to a boiler explosion as water filled the ship. A National Geographic special recently has tried to prove that it was a mine that hit first, setting off a chain of events that caused a fire and boiler explosion that devastated the ship. The situation prior to the outbreak of the Spanish-American War had been particularly tense. Several members of the media, such as Hearst, and prominent leaders in the military were calling for intervention by the United States to help the revolutionaries in Cuba. American opinion was most heavily impacted by newspapers, since there was no radio or TV, was overwhelmingly swayed, and hostility towards Spain began to build. American newspapers ran stories of a sensationalist nature depicting both real and fabricated atrocities committed by the Spanish. These stories often reflected how thousands of Cubans had been displaced to the countryside in concentration camps. Many stories used depiction of gruesome murders, rapes, and slaughter, and offered illustrations. During this time, there was a riot in Havana by those sympathetic to the Spanish. The printing presses of newspapers that had criticized the actions of the Spanish army were destroyed. Before the sinking of the USS Maine, one American media correspondent stationed in Cuba was quoted as saying that the American people were being greatly deceived by reporters sent to cover the revolution. According to him, an overwhelming majority of the stories were obtained through third-hand information, often relayed by their Cuban interpreters and informants. These people were often sympathetic to the revolution and would distort the facts to shed a positive light on the revolution. Routinely small skirmishes would suddenly become large battles. These stories revealed heaps of dead men, women, and children left on the side of the road. Correspondents rarely bothered to confirm facts. They simply passed the stories on to their editors in the States, where they would be put into publication after further editing and misrepresentation. Concerned that their goals were being undermined by some of the Midwest newspapers who were trying to stay honest and provide real news, Hearst and Pulitzer were looking for any story that would expand their middle-class audience. Two well-timed incidents served to support those interests. The first was the Olivet Incident, where a young and innocent-looking Cuban woman named Clemencia Arango was taken into custody aboard the New York-bound ship Olivet by Spanish officials under suspicion of delivering letters to rebel leaders stationed in the city. She was taken into a private room and searched. A passenger and reporter working for Hearst named Richard Harding Davis reported the incident. 
but was later appalled by the sensational claims which accused Spanish officials of sexual harassment. The headlines were as follows. Does our flag shield women? Indignities practiced by Spanish officials on board American vessels. Refined young women stripped and searched by brutal Spaniards while under our flag on the Olivet. Initially, Hearst even succeeded in garnering support among American women, but he soon found himself in trouble when Arango clarified the accounts. Although he never published an apology, he was forced to print a letter in which he explained that his article had not meant to say that male policemen had searched the woman, and that, in fact, the search had been conducted quite properly by a police matron with no men present. Fortunately for Hearst, a second incident soon followed. It involved a Cuban dentist named Ricardo Ruiz, who had fled to the U.S. during the Cuban Ten-Year War and had become a U.S. citizen. Ruiz voluntarily returned to Cuba after the conflict, married, and had no children. He was soon imprisoned under suspicion of associating with rebels and died in prison. Hearst published a headline the next day that read, Americans slain in Spanish jail. Ruiz's story had a significant impact on adding tension between the United States and Spain among the middle classes, who related to him, even though Ruiz was a proud Cuban. Although these incidents fueled American animosity towards Spain, they were insufficient to directly cause a war. That would take the sinking of the USS Maine. Yellow journalism swept the nation and its propaganda helped to precipitate military action by the United States. With the sinking of the Maine, the United States sent troops to Cuba as well as several other Spanish colonies throughout the world, and the war was on. After the war, Hearst became a leading Democrat who promoted William Jennings Bryan for president in 1896 and 1900. He later ran for mayor and governor and even sought the presidential nomination but lost most of his personal prestige when outrage exploded in 1901 after columnist Ambrose Bierce and editor Arthur Brisbane published separate columns months apart that suggested the assassination of William McKinley. Hearst denied any knowledge of Bierce's column and claimed to have pulled Brisbane's after it ran in a first edition, but the incident would haunt him for the rest of his life and all but destroyed his presidential ambitions. Pulitzer, haunted by his yellow sins, returned the world to its crusading roots as the new century dawned. By the time of his death in 1911, the world was a widely respected publication and would remain a leading progressive paper until its demise in 1931. Its name lived on in the Scripps Howard New York World Telegram and then later the New York World Telegram and Sun in 1950 and finally was last used by the New York World Journal Tribune from September 1966 to May of 1967. At that point, only one broadsheet newspaper was left in New York City in 1967. If we've learned anything from the past, it would be that newspapers are independently owned businesses that need to make a profit, unless the owners are extremely wealthy and keep the papers operating for reasons of their own, be they personal or political. In order to make a profit, each newspaper or blog or online news source has to decide where the majority of their readership lies and try to deliver news and comment which is tailored to suit their readers. According to a University of Michigan resource guide that I think you'll find interesting, no matter which side of the spectrum you stand on, a good source to help determine which news sources take which side 
is allsides.com, which is a news website that presents multiple sources side-by-side in order to provide the full scope of news reporting. The All Sides Bias Ratings page allows you to filter a list of news sources by biased, left, center, or right. And there they use a patented bias rating system that they developed. Components of the rating system include crowdsourcing, surveys, internal research, and use of third-party sources such as Wikipedia and research conducted by Gross, Close, and Milio. Note that while the Gross, Close, and Milio results are popular, the methodology is not without critique. The following is a report from Pew Research Center called Political Polarization. A report based on a 2014 survey shows which news sources are used and considered trustworthy based on individuals' political values, those being liberal or conservative. Note that this report measures the political leanings of the audience rather than the source itself. And as you look at the report, it shows a straight line graph with left, center, and right showing. Starting at the far left, in order, The Slate, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, NPR, Colbert, New York Times, BuzzFeed, PBS, BBC, Huffington Post, Washington Post, The Economist, Politico, MSNBC, Yahoo News, NBC News, Bloomberg, ABC News, ABC Today, Google News, and then just left of center, The Wall Street Journal. The Daily Cause, Mother Jones, and Ed Schultz were too small to include, but belong on the left as well. There are 25 major news sources to the left and far left of center. There are seven to the right. The first to the right of center, Fox News. And moving right, The Blaze, Sean Hannity, Glenn Beck, and Drudge. The question of honesty and bias in journalism has become a heated debate as America becomes more and more polarized. And there's no doubt that only a few print or media journalists will offer honesty to both sides of the story. Their income and popularity coming only from one side or the other in a polarized country. Ever wonder how many follow the almighty dollar and keep their real opinions to themselves? We'll never know. Thanks for joining us for The Power of the Press, Hearst and Pulitzer, Yellow Journalism. I hope you found it illuminating. We purposely didn't cover recent media bias stories here, a very touchy and never-ending subject, but one that deserves lots of dinner table conversations and has been the subject of many books for years. I found the stories of Hearst and Pulitzer very interesting as they rose to prominence and then battled each other for dominance in the New York market. There are other shows, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Radio Days. All of them are available wherever you find great podcasts. Thank you all very much for being such great listeners and for sending us those reviews. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.